A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content, such as adult language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. What was your relationship with Mr. Spilatro? I worked for him. He was my boss. What do you mean when you say that you worked for Tony Spilatro? I committed burglaries, murder, extortions from dope dealers, ran messages back and forth to the casinos, collected juice money. Of this litany, of this long list, what was your main occupation? I was a burglar. If the back and forth you're hearing sounds familiar, that's because you heard it in the opening scene of this series. It's taking place in June of 1985, during the third day of a public hearing held by the President's Commission on Organized Crime, an advisory committee set up under President Ronald Reagan. The witness is testifying from behind a screen to protect his present appearance. If you're connecting the dots, you've probably guessed that the witness is Frank Collada, who in 1985 is still in witness protection and living under an assumed identity. The voice you're hearing is a voice actor reading a transcript of Frank's testimony. The questioning continues. How many burglaries did you and your crew commit in Las Vegas? Well over 200. Not in Las Vegas, but throughout my lifetime. You know of the Stardust Hotel, do you not? Yes, I do. Did you go to the Stardust frequently once you'd moved to Las Vegas? Quite often. Why? I had to deliver messages there, bring messages back to Tony Spilatro. I fenced jewelry in there. The proceeds of the burglary, sometimes you would take to the casino? That is correct. I want to focus now on the messages, Mr. Collada. What kind of messages did you take into the casino? To get people jobs in there, to get people fired, to get people bought out of there. You say messages to get people hired. You mean Mr. Spilatro would tell you to get messages to people in the casino to hire John Smith? That is correct. Would Mr. Smith be hired? Yes, he would. Once you got power, a lot of power, you don't care about the money no more. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum. I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it, because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's only a question, not if, but when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. 
But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, you'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 10. Family Secrets. About a week ahead of his retrial, in the Hole in the Wall racketeering case, Tony Spilatro had been back in Chicago. He'd received a court order giving him permission to leave Las Vegas, to visit family and have some dental work done by his older brother. During the early afternoon of Saturday, June 14th, 1986, he was at the home of his younger brother, Michael, in the Chicago suburb of Oak Park, Illinois. Michael's wife, Ann Spilatro, would report that at about 2 p.m., Tony and Michael left her home together, driving away in her dark gray Lincoln Mark IV. But neither of the men returned. Two days later, Tony and Michael Spilatro were both reported missing. That same day, the Monday after they were last seen, the car they were driving would turn up in the parking lot of a Howard Johnson's restaurant, with no one inside. Early the following morning, a U.S. magistrate signed an arrest warrant for Tony after he missed a court deadline to return to Las Vegas ahead of his trial. After the warrant was signed, the FBI and U.S. Marshals Service joined local police in searching for the Spilatro brothers, but to no avail. Oak Park, Illinois police stated on Thursday, June 19th, five days after the brothers disappeared, quote, We're getting an awful lot of crank calls. The last thing we heard was that they moved to an apartment here in Oak Park and that somebody saw them doing their laundry. According to a report from the Review Journal, Authorities had also received a tip about some unusual activity at a wrecking yard in the Chicago suburbs. But when they rushed over to search the premises, the lead didn't pan out. Plenty of other tips like this were pouring in, but none of them led to Tony or Michael Spilatro. On Friday, June 20th, the Review Journal reported that authorities were working with two principal theories. One, that the brothers were in hiding. Or two, they were killed. After the Spilatro brothers went missing, Frank Collada, who was still in witness protection and going by a different name, received a call from his FBI handler, Dennis Arnoldy. He asked me if I knew where Tony and Michael were. They disappeared. They didn't show up for court. I said, well, then they're dead. And he said, how do you know that? I said, well, I don't know for a fact, but I know Tony. He would show up for court. He knows there's nowhere to run. And he said, uh, well, we can't find him. The search for the Spilatros stretched on for a few more days. And then Frank received another phone call. And then a few days later, he called me and he says, you were right. They found him in a cornfield. On Sunday, June 23, 1986, a farmer in rural Indiana discovered some loose dirt on his property, which was located about 60 miles outside of Chicago. It turned out to be a shallow grave. Inside were two badly beaten bodies, covered in mud and clothed in nothing but underwear, stacked on top of each other. The bodies would be positively identified as 43-year-old Michael Spilatro and 48-year-old Tony Spilatro. Dr. John Pless, the forensic pathologist who examined their bodies, said they had been in the grave for several days, at least a week, and that blunt force injuries probably caused by hands or feet caused the deaths. 
In an article published the day after the bodies were discovered, former Review Journal reporter Phil Lavelle would write, Spilatro's underworld reign and his supposed dream of becoming the Chicago mob boss ended in a shallow grave at a lonely Indiana cornfield. Here's Tony's former defense attorney and eventual three-term mayor of Las Vegas, Oscar Goodman, at a 2015 event held at the Mob Museum. I was shocked. Uh, I got a phone call from Nancy, Tony's wife, and said that she hadn't heard from them and she was worried that something was wrong. And then a couple of days passed and uh, I had heard, I think, through the television, I, I, I know nobody from law enforcement called me, uh, saying that... Uh, he and Michael were found dead in the, uh, they called it the cornfield in, in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was a couple of days after, and Tony was uh, very punctual. Uh, one of the reasons that I said the judges allowed him out on his own recognizance, because whenever he had a court appearance, he was there. I mean, he never missed a court appearance. He never ducked a court appearance. He was always on time. And it was um, very obvious that he was missing and uh, that something had been wrong, but we didn't know what it was. Former mob prosecutor Stan Hunterton told me he was in an airport when he heard the news about Tony. At the time, he was working in private practice, and he was traveling with the general counsel for one of his clients. And we were in the Chicago airport changing planes when the story of the killing of the Spilatro brothers came on the television set. And, of course, we were watching it. And... uh, the general counsel to the bank said, how many years you chased that guy around? I said, several. He said, the mafia is a lot more efficient than you guys. <laughs> my name is Frank Calabrese Jr. And a um, little bit about my background is I'm half Irish, half Italian, born and raised in Chicago. My mother's side was my Irish side. On my Italian side, my dad and my uncle Nick were both made members of the Chicago mob. So I was kind of born into this, kind of followed them into this life for over 20 years. This is Frank Calabrese Jr. And as you just heard, his father, Frank Calabrese Sr., and his uncle, Nick Calabrese, were both made men in the Chicago outfit. In spite of that, for the most part, Frank Jr. says he had a normal childhood, that he didn't know what his dad did for a living. But once he started to get a little older, his dad started to test him, or in his words, to groom him. And my dad's constantly testing me. That's what he does with everybody. You're all, in this life, you're constantly being tested. So he comes home from his day at work. He goes, we got to talk. I could see his adrenaline going at something important. Whenever it was important, my dad was very big on surveillance. So if we were in the home, we'd go in the bathroom. We'd turn the vents on. We'd turn the water on. He steps into my face, looking right in my eyes, inches from my face. He said, remember I told you there's no drugs aren't allowed in this neighborhood? Remember I told you there's rules in this neighborhood? I'm like, yeah, Dad. He goes, we had to kill two guys today. So he proceeds to describe in detail how they blew these two guys apart with shotguns. The whole time he's watching for my reaction to this. You know, am I ready for this? Well, this is my reaction. This is my dad. He's got my best interests at hands, right? He's got my back. He's not going to lead me down and let me hang out to dry. So I bought into it. I bought into my dad. But you know, it's funny because while he's telling me this, I'm like, man, I wonder what my friend's fathers were telling them about their day at work. I bet it was nothing like my dad's story. And did that change your perception of him at all? That's a good question. 
At that point, it was, it was um, no, I bought into my dad. I bought into the fact that, wow, this is crazy. But if, if, if my dad says this is the way the street is, this is the way the street is, there's rules. You know, I, I still at that point believe that my dad would not kill somebody just to kill somebody. Frank Jr. says he didn't ever buy into the mob, but he did buy into his dad and the life that his dad was selling. He says he eventually graduated, in his words, to carrying out more serious crimes for his dad. Extortion, arson, and eventually he reached a point where he was even willing to commit murder. In 1986, when Frank Jr. was in his 20s, he says his dad received an order to kill one of their associates, who'd gotten out of line. A guy named John Fecarata. When we were talking about this and starting to plan the murder, I told my dad, I go, let me kill John. He goes, what? I go, Dad, this is about family stuff. It's not about mob stuff. What John's done to us, what John's done to Uncle Nicky, let me do it. I go, hear me out. I go, a great, great idea. I said, let John think that you want him to be my mentor, that I am going to go with him and Uncle Nicky without you being there, the last person to ever think that, that something would happen. Frank Calabrese Sr. liked the idea. So they practiced and practiced how he was going to do it in his grandma's basement. But before the day came, Frank Jr.'s uncle Nick stepped in and said he would do the hit instead. He didn't want his nephew to turn that corner, to become a killer. He said, I don't want you to cross that line with your dad or the mob. You cross that line, there's no going back, you're out. So it really saved my life on that night. Frank Jr. says that as time went on, he started to realize his dad wasn't the guy he thought he was. And he had a family at this point, so he wanted out of the life. I decide that, you know, I'm going to take my family and I'm going to move out west. I've had enough of this. That in order to do that, you need money to start over. According to Frank Jr., his dad owed him money. He knew where his dad had a lot of money stashed away, so he went ahead and took what he was owed. And a little more. Around $800,000, as he recalls. But pretty quickly, his dad found out. One day he calls me. Now all I'm hoping for is he knows about this money. I've gotten most of it back to him. And all I want to do is finish paying him this money. And I actually made him a partner in two restaurants. Just so I figure if I'm giving him money, he'll leave me alone. Money was my dad's God. One day he calls me and it's good dad. See, my dad had this good dad, bad dad. He had multiple personalities, narcissist, sociopath. He says, meet me for coffee, son. It's about time, you know, I love you. You're doing the right thing. Meet me by the park. I go by the park. We hug it out. We're talking. I'm excited. Finally, this day's coming. He says, come on, let's take a ride. We'll go for coffee. We'll take my truck. Why take two trucks? All right. I get in the truck. We're going. He goes, I got to stop at a garage and grab something. It's a garage we own. Does it all the time. Okay. Nothing out of the ordinary. He goes, you want to take a walk with me? Because I was telling him a funny story. Do you want to walk and finish it or wait here? I go, Dad, let me walk with you. This is funny. We're walking, laughing. He goes to the garage, he opens the door, we go in, I flick the lights on, all of a sudden I hear the door slam and I turn around, bam, he's got me by the neck. He's got a gun in my face and he's got this glassy-eyed look in his face, the, the look I knew when my dad wanted to kill. Frank Jr. says his dad told him he'd rather have him dead than disobey him and that he'd stop by Frank Jr.'s grave to pay his respects. You know, they say your life flashes in front of you, it did. I'm thinking about my two little kids. 
He's going to kill me, bury me somewhere. They're never going to find me. They're going to go through life all screwed up. I got to get out of this garage. So I'm trying. I'm, I start crying. I'm used. I won't break eye contact with them. I'm using trigger words. Dad, I'm your son. Daddy, I love you. I've done anything you said. I don't understand what you're doing. And I'm trying to hug them. You know, uh, my kids. You, there's something. What's wrong? You let's talk about it. I don't know what I did or said, but something triggered that good dad. And I got out of that garage that day. My dad wasn't the kind of guy to threaten you like that with a gun. He always said, if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it. Because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. So you were 100% convinced that your dad was going to kill you that day. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, I seen it in his eye. Frank Jr.'s attempt to escape his father's grasp had failed. At least for the time being. And I got lucky. In 1995, I got indicted. Me, my dad, my brother... My uncle and seven other crew members for running a loan sharking operation from the late 70s to the early 90s through threats, intimidation, and any means of violence to collect the loan. Most people wouldn't think of getting indicted as a stroke of luck. But for Frank, this would be his way out. He decided to plead guilty, to accept a five-year prison sentence, serve his time, and turn over a new leaf. But things got a little complicated when, during the first year of that sentence, he was transferred to the same prison as his dad. After realizing that his dad hadn't changed, Frank Jr. decided to work out, as he put it, a business proposal with the FBI. He wrote the FBI a letter telling them he wanted to do whatever it took to keep Frank Calabrese Sr. locked up forever. And after a few weeks of discussions, he even agreed to wear a wire. These meetings were very, very hard, very strenuous. This is my father on one end. I'm trying to work out my relationship with him and any other. I'm trying to lock him up forever. For months, Frank Jr. met with his dad in the prison yard and got him to open up to talk about crimes he'd committed for the Chicago outfit. Government had enough. That was it. A few months later, I got transferred to another prison, finished out my time, did my drug program, and came home. Frank Sr. had told his son about all kinds of things he wasn't supposed to. From the secret ceremony he went through to become a made guy, to information about murders. And one of those murders, as the world would soon come to find out, was the double murder of Michael and Tony Spilatro. In 2007, Frank Calabrese Jr. would testify against his father, as well as several other top guys in the Chicago outfit during one of the biggest mob trials in the history of organized crime in the United States. In addition to Frank Calabrese Sr., the defendants in the racketeering case included Joey the Clown Lombardo and three other reputed heads of the mob. By this point, most of the old guard had died out. Because Frank Jr. and his uncle, Nick Calabrese, both testified against Frank Sr. on behalf of the government, the case would become known as the Family Secrets Trial. Frank Jr. told me that testifying against his dad was the hardest thing he's ever had to do. When I went to court, I hadn't seen my dad for six years. When I walked in that courtroom, I was overcome with emotion. I looked over at my dad, he aged. You know, I looked, I wanted to go over and I wanted to hug my dad. I wanted to say, dad, come on, this is it. We, we got to stop this stuff. You got to do the right thing now. Let's get out of here. Let's go home and let's lead a normal life. But as soon as he looked at me with those threats, I knew I was there. After one week of testifying on the stand, sleepless nights, I look at my dad, I get off the stand, I walk out of the room, and I go in another room, I got tears coming out of my eyes. The prosecutor comes and says, what's wrong? 
says, you know how sick this is? I says, I, in my heart, I felt that I just seen my dad for the last time alive. And it was, it was the last time I ever seen him. Ultimately, all five defendants in the case were found guilty, including Frank Calabrese Sr., who would die in prison about five years later. And then they put this humongous case together that basically chopped off the head of the Chicago mob. And because of that, the result from that is now that today, I can actually do tours in Chicago because there's really nothing left. It wasn't until this trial, the Family Secrets trial in 2007, that the public learned how Tony Spilatro and his little brother Michael ended up in that Indiana cornfield two decades prior. Here's how it went down, according to Frank Jr. As time's going on, Tony starts becoming a more high profile. He comes on the radar of law enforcement. The bosses are getting Nancy back home. They wind up losing a trial, and they're mad. They've had enough of Tony. They're going to jail for a long time. The boss at the time, a guy named Joe Ayupa, puts out the order. He finds out that Tony had an affair with Lefty Rosenthal's wife. Low Rosenthal was good to the mob for years, and they find out about the drugs, starting to find out about the drugs. So he says, I want Tony dead. When that order came down, in the spring of 1986, Frank Jr.'s Uncle Nick was sent out to Vegas with a few other guys to whack Tony. They spent some time surveilling him, but eventually decided it would be too risky to kill him in Las Vegas. When they come back home, me and my uncle and my dad are sitting, and uh, uncle tells my dad what was going on in Vegas. Keep in mind as you're hearing this that Tony wasn't some stranger. He was one of their friends. According to Frank Jr., their whole family was pretty close with the Spilatro family. Tony's older brother was even their family dentist. My dad goes, well, what, what's the new plan? Well, the new plan was that they were going to call Tony back to Chicago to have this making ceremony. Now, in this life, if you could call for a whistled in and you don't come, it's an automatic death sentence. So they're making him believe that he's getting this promotion to a compo. He's had it coming for a long time. He's earned it. And to make him believe it, they said they're going to make his brother Michael a made member at the same ceremony, but in reality, they're just getting them there to kill them both. This is very concerning to us as a Calabrese family because these guys were our friends, and the mob's getting more paranoid. The rules are changing. My dad said over the years, he says, they would have never done nothing like this years ago. Nick, what would stop them from coming after me and you for no reason? we got to keep our guard up. The ceremony, during which Tony was supposedly going to get his promotion to capo, and his brother Michael was supposedly going to become a made man, was set for Saturday, June 14th, 1986. Not coincidentally, the day the brothers went missing. So the day of, in June of 1986, the Spalachos, before they were to leave their house and go meet a, a mob boss, or a couple mob bosses in a shopping center parking lot, they told their wives, if we're not home by nine o'clock tonight, something's wrong. They took all their jewelry off, put it in plastic bags. Tony wasn't sure this was on the up and up, and up but he knew he had to go. He hides a compact 22 on Michael and they're en route. While Tony and Michael are driving over, Frank Jr. says his uncle Nick is waiting in the basement of the house where this ceremony was going to take place, along with more than a dozen other main members of the Chicago outfit. According to Frank Jr., his dad would have been there too, but he was out of town recovering from a surgery at the time. They get to the house. They're coming down the stairs. These guys start walking towards them like they're going to shake their hand and hug them and get the ceremony going. Instead, they all jump them and violently, savagely punch, kick, and strangle them to death. Now, something that stuck out to me was um, when my uncle was telling us when Tony knew that um, he couldn't make it, he screamed out, let me say an act of contrition, final prayer. Uh, you know, uncle, did he let him say it? He goes, I don't know. I didn't hear anything. I was concerned about my own life. There was a lot going on. You know, we, I didn't know what was going to happen next. What bothered me was at one time, these guys were all so loyal. 
and 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 so close and now they're violently and savagely killing each other off like wild animals and a lot of it's just because of paranoia and greed bodies weren't supposed to be found very important because they knew it would be more pressure from the government uh, the guys that buried them blotched the burial they thought somebody was on to them the farmer seen the dirt turned over thought somebody killed an animal and buried it there went to dig up the animal scene underwear called law enforcement that was the end of tony spilatro someone the mob had once trusted to look after one of its most lucrative territories beaten to death stripped and buried in a cornfield loyalty is a big word okay but when you get into this life there's a lot of paranoia and when paranoia sets in and, you, and criminal justification you start justifying you looked wrong at me you got something on your mind and it's a criminal justification criminal mentality i'm going to kill you because you looked at me wrong so spilatro had an incredible rise and an incredible fall this is unlv associate professor of history michael green he also left behind him a reputation that kind of goes to the whole notion of what the mob was about here. He was a father, a suburban homeowner. You'd see him out trimming the hedges. You'd see him at his kids' sporting events. He gave to charity. And there were people who knew him who have told me he was the most perfect gentleman they ever met. Well, you weren't in his way. If you're not in his way, he was a very nice guy, kind of friend you'd want to have. Uh, if you were in his way, you might not want to be in that position. At the time of his death, the only felony conviction on Tony Spilatro's record was for cheating on a home loan application. He was fined one dollar. While the rise and eventual fall of Tony Spilatro and his hole-in-the-wall gang was playing out in Las Vegas, the FBI had been continuing to aggressively pursue its investigations into skimming and hidden ownership of Las Vegas casinos. We're going to back up a few years now to February 14, 1979, which would prove to be a pivotal moment in the straw man investigation out of Kansas City. The investigation sparked by the electronic surveillance tapes you heard a couple episodes back. For most people, February 14, 1979 was just another Valentine's Day. For you mob enthusiasts out there, it was 50 years to the day after the infamous St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. For Bill Ousley, then supervisor of the FBI's organized crime squad in Kansas City, it was D-Day. That's the way he described it to me anyway. The FBI in Kansas City was gearing up to serve a whole bunch of search warrants related to the strawman investigation. So, on the morning of Valentine's Day 1979, Ousley's job was to head to the Kansas City airport to intercept a sandwich. That's the code word picked up on FBI wiretaps, anyway. Sandwich, as the FBI had ascertained, was code for a package of casino skim money being transported from Las Vegas to Kansas City. The skim courier, or sandwich delivery guy if we're gonna extend the mob's charming metaphor, was someone named Carl Caruso and Ousley was going to pick him up as soon as his plane landed. When that happened, the FBI and Kansas City police 
were prepared to execute search warrants on a number of locations throughout the city. So on D-Day, we, I was assigned to go up to the airport and meet Caruso, and once I said we had the money, then all the other search warrants would be executed on Nick Savella, Carl DeLunas, Carl Savella, Charlie Martino, all, all the main players uh, were going to be searched. Ausley and his team showed up just after Carl Caruso's flight landed and waited for him to approach the baggage claim. I guess just like we can uh, sort of pick them out, Caruso obviously picked us out, and uh, he immediately walked over to his son and handed him his briefcase and his carry-on and uh, I guess told him to get the hell out of there. They took Caruso into a security room to conduct a search. I said, uh, before you sit down, empty your pockets. Everything out of your pockets on the desk. So he takes the, you know, the coins in his wallet and all that. And then he reaches into his uh, sport coat on the right side, pulls out a packet of money. And I reaches in on the other side, pulls out a packet of money. And the two packets, rubber band together tightly, was the $80,000 skin package coming from the trap. For all the sophisticated techniques the mob used to sneak money out of casinos, rigging scales, falsifying fill slips, it turns out that the way they got their money from place to place after that was pretty simple. Here was their apparent courier, carrying $80,000 of illegally skimmed money onto a plane in his coat pockets. I said, well, what, what, is, what is this 80000 You usually carry 80000 like that? Oh, he said, it's just casino money. And I said, <laughs> I said yeah, it sure is. <laughs> After Ousley intercepted Caruso and the skim package, FBI agents and police officers began executing the other search warrants all over Kansas City. Gary Jenkins, an intelligence unit detective with the Kansas City Police, went with FBI agents to carry out a search warrant at the home of reputed mob underboss Carl Tuffy DeLuna, one of the voices who showed up on the wiretaps we played a couple episodes back. Tuffy comes to the door, and he actually knows the agent pretty well, Shay Airy, that was leading this team, and he invites us on in, and I just sit down in the kitchen while the agent starts spreading out, and Shay has uh, Tuffy bring his, his wife and, and his teenage boy was in the house at the time and bring them into the kitchen. And we're all sitting around the kitchen, me and Tuffy and his wife and, and son. And Shay's mainly staying there kind of in chatting with Tuffy a little bit. And agents are coming back with different things they'd find. And like they'd come down, oh, I got a gun up here. And got a, they found a, a beeper, a, a electronic transmitter that Tuffy had found underneath his car that the FBI had put on. And he'd taken off and then put in his room. And Gary tells me that things were cordial but Tuffy's wife and son started to get upset. Fair enough, I can't imagine anyone being thrilled about FBI agents rifling through their home. So Tuffy and his wife had somebody come pick up their son. And then she kept getting upset and kept getting upset, and he finally told her, you know, Sandy said, just cool it. It's, it's okay, these guys got a job to do. He said, make these officers some coffee. So she made a pot of coffee. They sat around drinking coffee together until about 4 a.m., when apparently Tuffy decided to speed things up. Well, he said, Shay said, you might as well go on downstairs. The good stuff's down there. And he takes them down there, and there's an office desk and an old safe that I, I don't know if they ever got into the safe. They did finally, I remember now, they did finally. There wasn't anything in it. I think the safe was there when he moved in. 
But uh, in this desk of his, he had all these handwritten notes, and that was the good stuff. I know I've mentioned a handful of times throughout this series that mobsters don't keep thorough records. Well, it turns out there was an exception. And that exception was Tuffy DeLuna. So it goes through, they go through these handwritten notes, and they can tell just at a glimpse that he's got percentages down there and code names and and talking about, you know, items of like accounting for when he went out to Las Vegas, how much the airfare was, how much he paid for parking, uh, who he talked to with these different code names. And, and really, with when they put that together with a lot of the wiretap information and, and Joe Augusto's information in the end, why uh, and other people that would end up uh, lower-level casino employees that would go in front of the grand jury and tell them things, why uh, it really drew a, a beautiful picture of exactly what had been going on, and, and Tuffy kept the notes. So that was, that was the night of Tuffy's. All of the searches on February 14th, 1979, uncovered, as Bill Ousley put it when I spoke to him, a mountain of evidence. Evidence that would eventually lead to enormous racketeering prosecutions. In November of 1981, 11 reputed mobsters were named in a 17-count federal racketeering indictment, which accused the defendants of maintaining hidden ownership and skimming funds from the Tropicana. The indictment alleged that they had transported at least $280,000 in skimmed revenue from the Tropicana to Kansas City and Chicago. When the case went to trial in 1983, Bill Ousley, of course, was called to testify about his work in the strawman investigation. And in dramatic fashion, at least dramatic for the FBI, he reenacted the moment he intercepted Carl Caruso, that skim courier, at the airport. I went up on the stand. I had the money in my inside pockets like Caruso did. And so, you know, we got to that point in my testimony and uh, whatever else I had to testify to. And he said, now let's get to the point and uh, tell us what happened when uh, Mr. Caruso sat down and, uh, and you asked him to empty his pockets. And I said, well, what he did, he put this hand in his right hand pocket and he came out with this, these 80, 40,000. I put it on the railing where the jury was. And I said, I put, he put his left hand in and got this 40,000. And he put that down on the rail. I put it down on the railing. And I said, uh, that represented the $80,000 in skim that we, you just heard played in one of the conversations that the money was coming. The courtroom, according to Ousley, fell dead quiet. Not a bad sign for the prosecution. And when all was said and done, all of the defendants had either been convicted or had pleaded guilty. The only exception being the guy at the very top, Nick Savella, the boss of the Kansas City crime family, who had died before the case went to trial. Of the 10 other defendants, Nick's brother, Carl, or Cork Savella, and Tuffy DeLuna received the stiffest sentences, 35 and 30 years in prison, respectively. According to Gary Jenkins, the Tropicana prosecution effectively terminated the mob in Kansas City. All the heads, Nick died. Uh, Tuffy went away until he was about 86, and about 20 years. Uh, Carl, Corky Savella, he went away for until he died. He, I think they let him out at the last minute uh, before he died. Uh, Charlie Martina, kind of another really important mob character that nobody really talks about very much. 
in Kansas City, but he, he went away for a long time. And so they it really took away the head. Now, the mob always can kind of move up a little. Everybody moves up a little bit. But this took away so much that it's never really been the same since. Uh, uh, there's not been a mob prosecution in Kansas City in, in 10 years now. In addition to the Tropicana prosecution, the strawman investigation brought about an even bigger prosecution related to the Argent Corporation, the holding company headed by strawman owner Alan Glick. In total, 15 men were indicted for skimming and exerting secret control over casinos owned by the Argent Corporation, and skimming at least $2 million out of the Fremont and Stardust casinos. This sweeping indictment included defendants out of Kansas City, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Chicago, although Alan Glick himself avoided being named in the indictment by agreeing to cooperate with the federal government. I was so confident of how the trap trial had gone you know, and they'd all been convicted. And I thought we had even better evidence in Argent with uh, Tuffy's notes and uh, what have you. I think there was a, was a strong confidence feeling in my part as to what the outcome was going to be. The Argent skimming case resulted in 13 convictions, reaching the very top of the Chicago outfit. Tony Spilatro had been named in the indictment, but he was murdered before he could be tried. Joey the Clown Lombardo, a reputed street boss or capo by this time, was sentenced to 16 years. Angelo Lapitra, a reputed boss, received the same sentence. Jack Cerrone, the outfit's underboss, and the guy at the very top, the boss of the whole organization, 79-year-old Joey Ayupa, were both sentenced to 28 and a half years. In Chicago, all the, the mob leaders in Chicago, Joey Ayupa, who was uh, the boss at the time, and kind of his uh, underlings, uh, main underlings, Jackie Cerrone and Angelo La Prietra, uh, were convicted and sentenced to long terms in the penitentiary. So when the trial ended, they were convicted and they got these long sentences. There was a great deal of satisfaction. And to know that it was going to have a great impact in maybe the demise of the mob in Vegas. And I believe it did. I believe it had a great deal to do with that was the final stage. So, uh, you know, subdued in, subdued in reaction, but a very, have a glass of champagne and sit there and say, you know, uh, we, did a, we did a good job. On the 11th and final part of Mobbed Up, Frank Collada goes back to being Frank Collada again, and the city of Las Vegas forges a new path. But actually, if you think back, I'm probably the only guy standing right now out of Chicago. This has been part 10 of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. We just have one installment left. I don't want to be presumptive, but considering you've stuck with us this far, you're probably going to want to tune in. If you somehow still haven't subscribed to the series yet, take 10 seconds to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or whatever the appropriate button is on whatever platform you've been listening on. That way you'll know Part 11 is available as soon as it drops. Mobbed Up is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. You can find me on Twitter, at Red Redmond, or send any comments or questions, 
or sandwiches by email at rredmond.reviewjournal.com. If you have any mob stories of your own, I'd love to hear them. Our sound designer and audio editor for this series is Jonathan McMichael, who also composed the theme song you're hearing right now. Other sound effects and music used in this episode are from Motion Array and Stephen Arnold Music. Thanks to everyone who sat down with me to share their insights and their stories on this episode. Frank Collada, Stan Hunterton, Frank Calabrese Jr., Michael Green, Bill Ousley, and host of the organized crime podcast Gangland Wire, Gary Jenkins. Select clips heard in the intro of this episode are from the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. You can learn more about the Mob Museum by heading over to themobmuseum.org. You can learn more about Mobbed Up and listen to some of the Review Journal's other podcasts by visiting reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. Thanks as always for tuning in, and we'll see you right back here next week with the final episode of this series. Music